welcome to a homegrown family podcast where we grow the produce and the kids. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a homegrown family podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mettler, and today we're talking about fruit of the vine and making wine. As I sit here in my spare bedroom drinking a little bit of last year's delicacy, a combination of Prairie Star and Frontenac Blanc grown from our very own Mettler Orchard. It's very tasty. I think it tastes something like a white Concord grape juice that you see in the stores with a little bit of a winey finish, but I digress. Here we are today talking about winemaking, and this is the story of how I kind of got into it and what I currently do for making wine. So I started making wine back in, I think, 2017 was my first batch or couple batches. I didn't start recording anything or writing anything down until probably 2018. And since 2018, to this date, I've currently brewed 119 gallons of wine or 23 different batches, approximately 600 bottles of wine, all home brewed with grapes from our very own orchard. You know, my batch size ranges typically from three to six gallons. The most common batch size is a five-gallon batch. So I started brewing or making wine in part because my dad and brother started this orchard, and what better thing to do with some grapes other than make some wine? To learn a little bit more about how we got started with the orchard, you can listen to a previous episode called Orchard Origin Story. It talks about different types of vines that we actually grew or different cultivars and how many vines we started with and how we kind of expanded the orchard size and things like that. So honestly, it's probably one of my better episodes I've done, me and my dad, my brother, talking about how the orchard got started. There are many different ways to making wine. You can Google wine, you can YouTube how to make wine, and you'll see a range of different methodologies there. And I've seen it anywhere from individuals just buying, you know, a half gallon from the store, and adding some yeast, strapping on a balloon, and to create that seal, and basically just using that. And then once it's done fermenting, they pretty much just filter it once and then drink it. There's no need to bottle your own wine with that type of methodology. There are also glass carboys of various sizes, you know, the three and the five gallon glass carboys, they call them. C-A-R-B-O-Y, you can Google that too. That is the containers that I started with. And then from there, I switched over more to the food grade five to six gallon pails, which is what I currently like and typically use. Upon occasion, I'll still turn over to my glass carboys. There are definitely pros and cons to each, for sure. You know, the small containers that you buy from the store, just have you have juice readily available. It's right there. It already has a bunch of sugar in it. And you can, you know, brew that just as is. It's pretty inexpensive. You know, you don't need a whole lot of equipment. You don't need a siphon to transfer the juices or the wine from the main fermenting container to your bottles. And then you don't need a bottle or cork. So that kind of saves some money there too. The one thing that's kind of nice about those small batches in that size, um, or perhaps doing even like a three-gallon carboy batch versus a five-gallon carboy batch, is that if the batch doesn't turn out, you don't lose a whole lot. But I've definitely brewed a bad batch or two. Usually it ends up being on the dry side when I first kind of started out making wine, I didn't do any back sweetening. And so I didn't add any sugars after fermentation to sweeten it up a little bit. The last couple of years though, probably since 2000, I've been doing a lot more back sweetening and that has really 
increase the quality of my, my wine. Kind of getting back to the containers here a little bit. Carboys, you know, those glass containers are more expensive. They're harder to clean because, you know, it's only like a tennis ball size hole on the top of the container. And so you have to get like a specialized brush to be able to brush it out and get rid of all that sediment in there. And if you drop them, they will break. I've definitely shattered a couple of carboys in my time. One of the biggest perks of a carboy is that it can result in less sediment or air contact with the wine also. You'll have less sediment that builds up on your glass than comparatively to plastic pails. I'm not sure entirely why. Perhaps the pails are just slightly more porous, allowing that sediment to kind of cling to the plastic. Less air in contact with the wine is also a perk of a carboy or, or pro because it results in less oxidation of the wine. And if you read into winemaking at all, they talk about, you know, how in your reed rack, you got to make sure you don't get bubbles in there to, to oxygenate your wine. And the less contact with the air, the better. It's important for preservation and shelf life of your wine. And plastic pails are basically the opposite, right? They're inexpensive, rather easy to clean. You know, you have a big, huge circle that you can stick your whole entire arm and shoulder in if you want. And they don't necessarily break. You might lose a handle here or there. But one can assume that you're getting an increased oxygenation amount because you have more surface area exposed to the air during transfers and re-racking. Re-racking is just when you put it from one container to another to clear out the sediments and have an opportunity to add more additives and things like that, which you will kind of want to minimize when you're taking winemaking to a really serious level. And sometimes I just... I quite frankly don't really care how much oxygen I get in my wine. My wine tastes good. I like it. And I don't really save it for more than like three years. I'd say my typical wine shelf life, three years. After that, I'll kind of start tasting a little bit of vinegarness. But, you know, it's more careful with my oxygenation and how much wine and air I let intermix and things that maybe I could get a five-year lifespan. I don't know. It's not quite to the specification of like a commercial winery. The next thing I want to do is go over a couple of the things that you need in order to get started. And so you need a container, right? You need your juice. You need yeast. And I'd probably consider doing a specific wine yeast. Um, I'll get more into yeast here in a little bit. You need a siphon, especially if you have like a five to six gallon bash. You're going to need a siphon to be able to transfer the wine from one container to another. You're going to need a spoon. That's like a two to three foot long spoon. They sell those at brewing stores and things. To help stir and mix in any sugars, mix in your yeast and your other additives, you're going to need bottles. So when I first started out, my dad, you know, drank a fair amount of wine here and there. And I asked him, hey, can you start saving the bottles for me? And so I brought these bottles home that had labels and, and the shrink wraps on the caps or the tops of the, the wine. And so I had to cut those off and then I had to soak bottles and peel away the labels and everything. And, and that was definitely a process. But now, that have kind of kind of reached my maximum output pretty much without getting more commercialized per se, is that I pretty much get the same bottles back because I make these batches and I give them to my siblings. I have six of them, so it doesn't take very long to go through this batch of wine. Typical batch of wine for me for five gallons is I usually clean 25 bottles. And that's usually enough, especially if I use one or two of like the barefoot wine bottles, you know, the big ones that fit like three regular size bottles in it. I make a couple of those for the big parties, you know, and everything. So I'm <laughs> that by, I mean, family get-togethers. And so you got to clean bottles. And in order to clean bottles, you also need sanitizer. And so in the previous episodes, I talked about in the canning juice and 
juice extraction episode, I talk about sanitizer. And so I use Star San. I think it's one ounce per five gallons. And it's been a really good sanitizer for me. It's been an acidic sanitizer. And it's supposed to be rinse-free. So you can sanitize and you just let it dry and it's supposed to be rinse-free. But I like to rinse things anyways. Even though your wine itself is pretty acidic, this is... Uh, my wine is usually about like 3.5, 3.2. And this solution brings it down to like a 2.5, 2.3, depending how strong of a solution you make. But you need sanitizer to be able to, you know, make wine that's not going to get contaminated. And then it's kind of on the same token as sanitizer, you need airlocks, right? In that case, I mentioned about a balloon to ferment with. So the air escapes into the balloon, but nothing can come into the carboy or the fermentation vessel itself. And so you need like an airlock, which is what they call them in the industry here and brewing world, that will help transfer, you know, air safely without bringing more air in during the fermentation process into your fermentation vessels. And so you need to put sanitizer solution in between there so that way the air passes through the sanitizing solution. And then speaking of bottles, you're going to need corks. And here I have in front of me the type of cork that I use. It's called a C-2 space 08-13, which I think it means it's a 13 size cork. But it's like not like a true real cork, but it's like a synthetic type true cork, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But um, that's the size I use and have used for the last five years. And this year I ordered this same exact size cork, but I switched over to a different style of cork. So they're not all alike. You know, you get your synthetic corks, your real corks, and your things like that. And it doesn't seem like they're always the same size. So I've been having to push these corks in pretty hard this year because <laughs> they're not they're not fitting a whole lot of bottles real well, which is oftentimes resulting in a broken cork when I Try to decork my bottles, unfortunately. So then, in order to put the corks in, you're going to need one of the uh, corker. You know, there's many different types of corkers. The two-handle lever corkers you just push down. And there's the desktop corkers that you put the bottle under and the machine does it for you. just depends on what you want to spend your money on, I guess. I think that's pretty much all of the tools and equipment side of things that you would need. The next thing would be, like, the different types of additives that you'd need. Of course... I guess yeast is an additive, but the first type of additive that you'll need is Camden tablets. And I talk about this a little more extensively in the juice extraction episode, but Camden tablets is what you use when you first have your raw juice from the grapes, and so it keeps the wild yeast from fermenting. It'll use to kill bacteria and prevent mold growth. It's used to initially sterilize your juice or your must. And so that's the Camden tablets. This again is what I do what I use. Some things you can give or take on a little bit. And so I use potassium metabisulfate as an antioxidant to help remove suspended oxygen as a tool to help slowing aging and things like that. There's also potassium sorbate that you need, that you will need. You don't necessarily need the potassium metabisulfate, but I'd say that you need the potassium sorbate, especially if you're going to be back sweetening. You wouldn't need the sorbate if you don't plan on back sweetening. Plan on back sweetening. To make your sweet wine more sweet, you need potassium sorbate, which helps prevent the renewal of yeast fermentation. And then I also use yeast nutrient, which helps ensure that all the building blocks are there that the yeast needs to multiply and produce and to be able to ferment the wine or the juice. I use pectic enzymes to help destroy the pectins, breaks down pulp, and helps pressing more efficient. 
I don't necessarily use it for that purpose, but that's what it should be used for. So if you have a pail full of juice, scrapes, skins, stems, that you kind of crushed with a manual crusher, put all in the same pail, and want to ferment all that at once, you want to add some peptic enzyme to be able to help extract more of that juices and that flavor and everything. I primarily use it as a way of reducing the haze or pectin haze that can happen with wine making, and so I use it to help increase the clarity of my wine. And then there are a couple optional tools that you could use. For example, if you want to put shrink wraps on top of your bottles to make them kind of look fancier, well, you need the shrink wraps, and you probably need a heat gun to be able to shrink the wraps onto the bottles. And if you want to use uh, labels of some sorts, you know, I just use like your garage sales type labels, you know, the little green, yellow, pink type of uh, labels that are round circular. You know, I'll put a little tiny FB for Flontenac Blanc and then 23 for 2023 or something like that. I also use some other labels that are like an inch by inch and I'll write a little bit more information on those like 13% ABV, you know, alcohol by volume, and things like that in my ratio. You know, for example, that, that wine that I was drinking here, the Prairie Star is 60% Prairie Star, and it's 40% Frontenac Blanc, and has an 11% ABV, and it was made in 2023. So, I kind of write different things like that onto my labels. So, that's pretty much all I use, I believe. <laughs> but I'll probably spend more time talking about what I use and what I actually do as a process here. So, what does the process entail? It's really not too complicated. My process has changed a little bit over time. You know, fermentation vessels have changed a little bit. Um, the type of yeast that I use has changed a little bit. I started back sweetening the last couple of years. And so there's a little bit of changes here and there. But going back to our juice source, which is going to be the biggest thing, you know, a Frontenac Blanc all by itself may not have the same quality as, you know, Prairie Star and Frontenac Blanc mix. So the juice that you have is the foundation to a good wine. And so, in the early years, you know, my brother and I, we didn't really pay too much attention to the sugar content or bricks of the grapes as we harvested. You know, we weren't selling to any wineries, we weren't selling to any cideries or anything like that. And so, since we weren't selling them, we kind of just, you know, hey, these look like they're about ripe, and we picked them, and we crushed them, and put them through the destemmer and everything like that. And lo and behold, you have a drier wine, because the bricks, or the grapes are less sweet to begin with. Later on, we found out that wineries want grapes at a certain bricks, and each cultivar they want at a specific bricks. And in general, you know, we want it between 17 and 22 bricks. I'd probably say 20 bricks is the most common. So we started selling grapes to wineries, and they wanted certain bricks. And from there, you know, we were harvesting at certain bricks, and if there's certain cultivars that they didn't want in a particular year, that's what I would use to make our own wine. So this year, I primarily have all white wines because the winery that we sold to wanted the red grapes. And so kind of going to the end of our our fruit harvest and juice extraction episode where we put all the berries through the December decrusher and we press it and everything. We had the five canum tablets, one per gallon, into this pail. And now we have the pail. I transported the pail to my basement where all the fermentation magic happens. And you wait 24 hours. So let the canum tablets do their thing. They're going to release some of that sulfur dioxide. And so when you first pop that pail back open, let it vent off for a little bit. You know, you don't want to stick your nose in there and get a big whiff. It might smell a little sulfury, you know. Let it air it out a little bit as you're adding your yeast, your yeast nutrient, and your pectic enzyme. Pectic enzyme should really be added in the must, like I mentioned earlier, before fermentation starts or begins. 
to allow some of that pectin to break down. And then as far as yeast nutrient goes, I add one teaspoon per gallon. You can buy yeast nutrient readily online. Uh, you can make your own yeast nutrient, which I haven't done yet, but I might look into. And then you add your peptic enzyme, which is a half a teaspoon per gallon. So oftentimes my batches are five teaspoons of yeast nutrient and two and a half to three teaspoons of peptic enzyme because I have five to six gallon batch. In terms of my yeast, I went to a local brew store, I guess. What they had on hand was this brand of Red Star yeast. And so that's kind of what I used. I think it was mostly a store used for brewing beer, but they said that these would work well for wines as well. And so the yeast that I like to use for white wines is the Cote des Blancs. It's C-O-T-E des Blancs or the Premier Blanc yeast. And so I started off using the Premier Blanc. And then I also heard that the Cote des Blanc will work for white wines and also like blushes. Instead of buying a bunch of one type of yeast, I kind of got a yeast that's multi-purpose. For the red wines, I like to use Premier Classique or Premier Suve. Classique is C-A-L-S-S-I-Q-U-E and Suve is C-U-V-E-E. And so I like to use those different types of yeast for my red and my white wines. In general, I'm thinking about trying a couple other different wine yeasts. And that'll have to come up as a different episode because I'm not sure exactly which ones I'm going to try yet. So I'm um, going to change and fine-tune some of my methodology here with my yeast that I use and see if I can depart a different or depict a different flavor um, using the same exact batch of juice. And so then you do all that, you stir it together, put the lid back on with your airlock. As far as the fermentation process goes, fermentation can happen and be completed in two to three days, uh, five days maybe. You can kind of tell because your airlock stops bubbling for several days in a row, and then you kind of know your, your process of fermentation is completed. And so once that is completed, what I'll do is I'll, I'll grab a big tote that's like a 35-gallon tote or something like that type of size, and I'll, I'll create that star sand sanitizer solution with one ounce per five gallons, and I'll create a 10-gallon solution for my tote, and then I can easily grab a different pail, spin it around in there, let it set for five minutes so it sanitizes properly, and then use that pail to re-rack into, which is kind of the next thing. So what you do then for a re-rack is that you want to siphon your wine into a different sanitized pail that I just sanitized with that solution, and then leave behind any of that sediment that and that dead yeast cells that are in the bottom of the pail. So you don't want to put the siphon all the way down to the bottom of the pail, hold it and midway through the pail, and slowly go down farther and farther and farther until you start sucking up just a little bit of that, that yeast cells, right? You don't want to waste wine, so you want to suck up just a little bit of that yeast cells because you're going to re-rack again later anyways. So during this time, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll re-rack. And so all I have is this wine without all the sediment in the yeast cells in a new pail. And then I'll take a hydrometer to measure my specific gravity, my alcohol by volume, my bricks, and my pH, which is actually what I measure when I add the yeast as well. So I measured all that stuff when I added the yeast to see what kind of percent ABV I'll have, which typically it's around 11 to 13. And so then, once you have transferred all that into another pail during your re-rack, I will measure that again to just confirm that all the sugars indeed and did or did not disappear, or 0% you know, bricks remaining. I do measure my pH again just to kind of see if that changed a lot. Sometimes it'll rise a little bit from like 3.2 to 3.4. It'll vary just slightly, but I don't know if the pH has a whole lot of factors in what I'm doing currently. And then, so once the re-rack is done, let it sit for a little while. I like to let the, the sediment settle again. And so you want to take 
that and let it sit for like another week or so. Doesn't really matter. You can let it sit longer if you'd like. And then I'd like to re-rack again. And you wouldn't necessarily have to re-rack again. You basically could re-rack the first time and do this, this step that I'm talking about now. And so the only reason I re-rack multiple times is to try to reduce or try to increase my clarity. And so when you do your first re-rack or if you wanted to, to increase clarity and re-rack again, you could. If you don't have the time to re-rack a bunch of times, like this last year I had so many batches that I just skipped that re-racking and went straight to one re-rack there. And that first re-rack where I siphoned all into a brand new pail, got rid of all the yeast cells, um, I measure the bricks again. If it's zero, I know that fermentation is done. And then I'll add my potassium sorbate at a rate of a half a teaspoon per gallon. I'll also add a half a teaspoon of potassium metabisulfate per five gallons. So I add a half a teaspoon of metabisulfate and then three teaspoons of potassium sorbate. And this is, like I said, to basically make sure the yeast will not ferment any longer. And it'll also help stabilize your wine. Now, before I did any back sweetening, I usually just wait a day or two after the step and then add bentonite clay to clarify my wine, but I decided to stop doing that. It just seemed like it was one less input to put into my wine, and I just didn't really like the process. And so once you add all that into your pail, you stir it all up, and then you got to wait like 48 hours at least to allow the metabisulfate, the sorbate, to do its thing to basically make it so the yeast will not produce any more or multiply anymore. And then I'll re-rack again and add my sugars to back sweet. Probably don't have to re-rack again. You could probably just straight up add the sugar and then let it wait a month before bottling and be fine. So I started off re-racking with just table sugar, um, you know, cane sugar or whatever like that. And I, I tried a couple batches with honey. And in the end, I like to back sweeten with dextrose, which is a very simple corn sugar. And mostly because it just dissolves really quickly. You know, I can stir it in a matter of like two minutes and it'll all be dissolved. If I was doing that with table sugar, it just took forever to stir it in and get it dissolved into my wine. And if you're wanting to reduce the amount of oxygen going into your wine, stir it less. And so by adding the fine sugars of dextrose, I didn't have to worry about stirring it quite as much. So that was great. Once you add the sugars, put that lid back on it, still using the airlock, and then wait. You know, you can wait a week, you can wait a month, you know, typically my whole process is about two months. So I start fermentating, give it two weeks or so, plus or minus, you know, and then I do that first re-rack where I get rid of all the yeast cells and then I add in potassium sorbate and potassium metabisulfate, kill off the yeast and make sure it doesn't reproduce anymore. A week after that, I re-rack again, add the sugars and my back sweetening, and so that brings me up to, you know, almost a month. And then I'll let it sit for a month before bottling. So the last step after, you know, the sugar addition is that you can bottle. And you don't have to wait a month. You can do it a week after if you'd like. But it's about a two-month process for me. You know, sometimes I have 10 five-gallon pails in my basement at a time. And by the time I get to that last pail for bottling, you know, it could be three months, four months. So I do notice that it does seem to taste better with every step. You know, I do, I do a little taste testing between each step just to see how it tastes. You know, I kind of guess, hmm, after that first re-rack, do I need to add one pound of sugar or two pounds of sugar? I guess that's a good question. You know, how much dextrose do I add? I start off with one pound. And, you know, I get feedback from people. You know, what do my siblings think? How does it taste? And one pound of dextrose doesn't seem to be 
very adequate for those who like sweeter wines. One pound I will add if it starts off at pretty high bricks or the pH is closer to four. And I figure it's going to be less bitter. And so I can add less sugar. But as the pH gets closer to, you know, approaching three, I'll add up to three pounds of dextrose. I've never added any more than that. And my wine's been fairly sweet and, and do that. So kind of just depends. I guess some of the other things I've done recently is last year I had added Basically, after the fermentation process was all done, you know, I back-sweetened it how much ever I wanted to. And then in that month waiting period, I added four ounces of French oak chips. And I think it recommended you taste it like every week or every like four days. So after four days, I tested it, drank a little bit, and like, hmm, not quite oaky enough. So then I waited another four days and tested, taste tested it again. And it's like, hmm, yep, oh yeah, that's about right. That's perfect. And so I really liked that one. That was a, I used the grape Savoir and that's 100% Savoir with French oak chips. And it tastes really good. And as it's been sitting about a year, it's getting a little bit more oaky as the time goes on. So it's, I don't know, it's been one of my favorite wines so far. And this year's been quite quite a variety with the different whites. You know, we tried a, a Louis Swenson all by itself. We tried a Louis Swenson and a Prairie Star. We tried that Prairie Star and Frontenac Blanc. And then we had one blush wine that we tried, which was a... 60% Prairie Star, um, 20% Brianna. And I did 100% Brianna wine before. Ugh, that's pretty tasty too. So this one was a 60% Prairie Star, 20% Brianna, and a 20% Marquette, which was the red grape. And so that one turned out pretty good. I thought it had a little bit of a bite to it, but it's kind of grown on me a little bit over time. For example, let's, let's just look at that recipe a little bit. And so, you know, I, I usually make a recipe book, you can call it, and I write down what cultivars were used. I write down fermentation date when it started. So I started here in beginning of September. It's a six gallon batch. And then what I do is I add one packet of Premier Blanc Red Star yeast. I measured the specific gravity when I added the yeast and it was 1.081. And you use that with a hydrometer. You know, it measured 20.5 bricks, pH of 3.2. And I added that yeast nutrient in the pectic enzyme. And then I re-racked approximately a month and a half later. <laughs> so it kind of just depends on how long, you know, there's not really a timetable here that you have to follow. And I re-racked, and then I added the three teaspoons of potassium sorbate and the half a teaspoon of potassium metabisulfate. And I let that sit for, it looks like, about another month and a half. I re-racked it and then added two pounds of dextrose. And then I waited about two weeks and then bottled. And I do think I am re-racking an additional time than what I have in the past. Usually when I add the potassium sorbate and the metabisulfate, I can add the sugars right away. But I think there is a little bit of a risk with that in that if you add the sugar in at that period in time, your yeast could kick off and start fermenting again before the potassium metabisulfate and potassium sorbate really neutralize that that yeast. So I think that extra re-racking does result in a better clarity of the wine. And yeah, I think that's kind of the general gist of the recipes that I use. Yeah, pretty straightforward, right? I'd say again, you know, how long does it last? I'd say about three years before I start noticing a little different differences in the changes of taste. But we had a Valiant wine. I think it was 2020 is when the year in which I made it. My brother got married like the year after. And then my brother got married and I brought a couple of those big Boone's Farm type bottles that are like three times the size and served like three, four of those at the wedding. And, and people loved it. So um, I guess I'm an amateur. I still think even though 600 bottles in, my wine's getting better and better every year. My podcast here is now available on YouTube for about a week now. 
So that's pretty awesome. Actually, probably about two weeks by the time you listen to this episode. Check me out on YouTube, follow me, and it's a lot easier to leave comments there. If you have any types of questions, I'll try to answer them if I can. Shoot me a like. Feel free to rate my podcast. Leave comments, stars, you know, multiple stars preferably. <laughs> you can also follow me on Instagram at a homegrown fam where I'll post different videos and things as my podcast topics are coming up. It usually includes a little bit of additional information and things I'm currently working on when it comes to garden things and homesteading things that typically are topics of this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Happy New Year.